This is Dave Broadbeck uh, here talking to you, and as I guess you'd imagine considering the name of the podcast. And uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from the fall term in 2018 from Algoma University. It is Biology uh, and also Psychology 2606. Hey, you Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. It's good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Things have been okay for me. Okay, um... I figured out how to make this stuff work now. Well, I didn't figure out how to ask somebody. So, we talked about how, about brain, about behavior, definitions of those things. Anybody have any questions about that stuff? We talked about last time before we move on. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about well, some history. History's a good thing. You know, actually, uh, it's interesting that the Earth was probably hit by another planet like four billion years ago, which is a cool thing. People figured out recently. But that's a different story. And I'm serious. People are they can look it up. Um, okay, so that's, I sort of yada, 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 a bit of history there. It's interesting that we started living in towns, in settlements. Uh, first place there were settlements was the confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It's the cradle of civilization. Baghdad, Iraq, actually. Um, and people stopped being hunter-gatherers there because they grow things. What they were growing is, is um, grain. Uh, barley, millet, things like that. And you would think they were growing grain so they could make bread. And it turns out, in fact, they were probably growing grain to make beer, uh, which is pretty great. Um, the oldest known beer recipe is, in fact, about six and a half thousand years old. And if you make the bread that's supposedly in this recipe, it's, it's inedible. It's hard as a rock. But if you take it and you soak it, like it says in the recipe, it starts to ferment and it becomes beer, which is kind of great. So people stopped being hunter-gatherers because they wanted a drink. It's Civilization is based on alcohol. Um... Probably early humans, even before we were living in towns and stuff, uh, started, we're thinking about why we do what we do. We do this all the time. We're sort of amateur psychologists, all of us. We have to guess why each of us is doing what we're doing, right? I try to guess, and I do this implicitly. It's not like I sit there thinking, I wonder what she's thinking. It happens automatically, right? It's called theory of mind. Um, and... You might wonder, do other people think the way I do? There might have been some smart guy or woman sitting around a campfire 11,000 years ago thinking that. Probably some. Right. So, okay, there were cave people. Then Aristotle came along. Again, I'm skipping vast swaths of history. There's Aristotle. It's an actual photo from, at the time, there were not photos. It's from a statue. It's a pretty good statue. The thing is, they never put the iris and the pupil and the eyes in those Greek statues, so they always look a little creepy. Right? Now, Aristotle is one of the first... Well, he's one of the first person that wrote stuff down that we know about. And he thought the heart was the seat of behavior, which I know today we think is stupid. It's obviously not. It's obviously your brain. But 
you've got to realize that he had no giants to stand on. He, had, he was doing this with first principles. And when he thought, oh, yeah, well, your heart, it stops beating, it stopped behaving. Actually, that's not a bad piece of logic. It's wrong. I mean, it's true that you stop behaving when your heart stops beating. But, heck, I mean, give the guy some credit. You know, no one's going to be talking about us in 4,000 years, any of us. I can guarantee that, but we'll still be talking about Aristotle. Or his friends, his friends called him Ari. Um, so he said the heart was the seat of behavior. And it's funny, once you buy into that, as many people did, and then you notice brains are important too, you then have to double down on your position, because you're Aristotle, and you say, oh, well, big, why would you have a brain? Oh, I see, it's a radiator to cool your blood. Aristotle knew about other animals and saw that some animals had really big brains, bigger than humans, but not as big as their bodies, you know, related to their body size. And it's like, well, why is that? Well, humans are smarter. Right. Tell us more, Aristotle. You're very wise in the ways of science. It's wrong, of course. But it's interesting, right? Now, others, not contemporary to him, but in ancient sort of classical period, figured out that the brain was the most important thing. One of the first people that did this was a physician named Galen. Um, Galen was a, if you go to medical school, you'll read Galen if you take history of medicine. Um, Galen's an interesting character. He was sort of, he wrote probably the first medical textbook that had stuff in it that worked. Now, some of the stuff didn't work too, but there were things like using honey on a wound to disinfect it, which works. You know, polysporin works way better. Don't use honey. But I'm saying it does work. There are antibacterial qualities. He talked about using spider webs crushed up to coagulate a wound, to coagulate the blood. And that actually works. Again, I wouldn't do that. I'd go to the hospital. I have a wound bad enough that it needs to, that there's blood spurting. And you go, you call nine in the one, and then there's also a one you could dial after that. Or you can just yell at your phone, and it'll call for you. But he was also the physician, sort of the, the, the physician to the gladiators. That's kind of a job. And by the way, most gladiatorial fights in ancient Rome did not, were not to the death. They were more like MMA fights with weapons. There were fights to the death. The Romans weren't, you know, there were cool things about the Romans, then other things you went, oh, that's a little off. And next up, a public execution, though people used to do that up to a couple of, maybe a hundred years ago. But, Galen, because he was the physician to all these gladiators, realized that head injuries were bad <laughs> and that they were causing behavioral changes. So he was pretty sure that the brain was the seat of behavior, not the heart. Okay. Right, so let's skip even more history. We're now at 1588 to 1679. Yes, Thomas Hobbes lived that long. He was, of course, played by Patrick Stewart. Thank you. Um, so Thomas Hobbes is a British, what's called a British empiricist. It was a school of thought that says that the mind is a blank slate. The contents of the mind rest on experience, and all of the contents of the mind rest on experience. Uh, John Locke, not the guy from Lost, if you watch Lost, he was named after the philosopher. Say what you will, that's not a good-looking guy. 
<laughs> I'm just saying. He looks kind of dignified to be a little rough. He looks like Again, no one's going to be talking about me in 400 years. They'll still be talking about it. He said your, your mind is a white paper or tabula rasa. He said white paper because you know you're in English, which is kind of revolutionary, but it was then translated into Latin because Latin was the language of the of academics up until the geez, late 1800s. So it was translated to tabula rasa because there wasn't really a word for paper in Latin because they didn't have paper. So people thought it was a blank slit. So in other words, that again, these two guys, all the contents of the mind rest on experience. It's, it's an extreme position, and extreme positions are almost always wrong. The world isn't quite that simple. Uh, if it were that simple, we could take anybody and with the right back uh, sort of uh, environment turn them into a genius, and it just doesn't work that way. If only it were true, that would be nice. But it's also, so that's a revolutionary idea. It's also a very common idea among a lot of people today. Wrong, but it's a common idea among a lot of people today. But it's revolutionary at the time. I'll show you why it's revolutionary. I need a coin, a Canadian coin. I'm not going to do a trick. I just need you to read something off a Canadian, or if you've got a British coin, a Canadian coin. One with the picture of the Queen on it. Anybody have a, I don't carry cash. <laughs> Nobody carries cash anymore, right? Looks like you've made of a coin. Okay. That one, what's it say around the Queen? Thank you for your effort, though. Second, that's the thing. Vagina. Vagina. You know what that means? Anybody know what that means? Nobody took Latin. Eugenia's queen. That's good. You know what the DG stand for? Stands for? It's Dea Gratia Regina. By the grace of God, Queen. Now, nobody believes that anymore, that God made her queen. I imagine if Elizabeth II, if her majesty were here, she would probably say to us, well, God didn't do it. And we'd all have to go like that or something. I don't know how it works. I don't know what the protocol is. But, so that's tradition now. And when Charles becomes king, which, interesting, most people don't know this, he doesn't have to be called Charles. He might end up changing. Most people figure he'll call himself George after his grandfather. I don't know why I know that. I don't know why it matters, but it's just, I, I found it out this year, and that's what I'm telling you. I'm very excited about it. Um, and it'll say VG Rex. Rex is king. People actually believed that then, that God made certain people special. Well, there's the royalty, then the nobility, then the losers. What these guys are saying is, no, not true. Everybody's the same. So it's a revolutionary idea. And in fact, John Locke was a revolutionary. The glorious revolution. That's a pretty amazing thing. So they're saying, and again, this is an extreme position that it is almost, well, it is incorrect that there's no differences in humans except for what the experience have. That just simply isn't true. But 
the idea that it's not all just because God said, willed that you would be a peasant and you would be royalty and you will be nobility. That's a pretty <coughs> revolutionary idea. Now, there were people on the other side of the argument to a point. One of them is Rene Descartes. Who, I don't know if, what you guys think. That picture makes him look more French than ever French, like, than, like, than Charles de Gaulle. He looks very French. Huh? I don't mean French from Quebec. I don't mean, he looks like he's from France. Good, we had a stupid American. You know, that's when he's got that look on his face. It's great. I love it. They've captured it. I don't know. He said we were machines with souls. That's cool. I kind of like that, anyway. So the notion that the mind and body are separate, I don't like that much. But he said that the soul is different from the body. Now, the interesting thing is, half the time when you read Descartes, it's better to read the French if you can. You know, it's kind of archaic. But when you read it, half the time I think he means your immortal soul. He was quite Catholic. But the other half the time he means your mind. And it's hard to tell when he means one and when he means the other. But it sort of gives academics permission to study the mind on its own without worrying about the body. That's a crazy notion, but it's the when he said they're separate things, right? You've got like I said, kind of permission. This is a great intellectual saying. It's okay. It's a separate thing. Study that. Um, he said animals have no soul. They're just machines. Now that fits in the church doctrine, right? Because they're dogs owned by heaven. The Catholics, is that right? Right? The animals don't go to heaven. I don't know. Stop being Catholic on this three. I'm not baptized. I could be Pope. Could be elected Pope. Baptized male. Um, but yeah, animals have no soul. So that fits in with church doctrine. And then he said, like, well, I bet we could find a part of the body where the soul is. And he thought, uh, let's see, I got humans have a pineal gland, and I can't find it in other animals. That pineal gland is where your soul is. It's awesome. Again, it's like when you look at this, you think that's stupid. But if it's the 1700s, and you're like, you know, okay. Fair enough. Like, you couldn't just go to the library and ask somebody, do you have any references on the soul and where it might be? You guys get science or nature? You know, it's, it's a different time. There were libraries, of course. So he says that there's something special about humans, and the big thing is that we have our mind is separate from our body. He said, of course, in the famous Latin phrase, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am to prove his own existence. So if you can think, you must exist. Right? And the, the cogito, so that's the thinking part, comes from here. You know, the animal soul, it's in the human soul. Sorry, I would do that. I always point with, with that finger, and it's not, it's not meant to be disparaging at Descartes or any of you. Okay. So we'll skip some more history. Then those are some of the big people in we get the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment, of course, is sort of Shakespeare on 
Enlightenment is basically when the pretty good Assassin's Creed games were set. So Revelations, ones like that. Who plays Assassin's Creed? What's wrong with you people? Lately, I've been playing a lot of the Ghost Recon Wildlands. That's pretty fun. I played it because my son was playing it, and then I joined this session. And all he doesn't—he doesn't have the idea that you're supposed to sneak around. His idea is you just come in, guns blazing, shooting things. I'm trying to explain to him, we're supposed to sneak in and snatch this guy, John. And he's like, "No!" And he's just flying the helicopters, spraying bullets everywhere. It's a different approach. So by the 19th century, people were talking about the psychology. Start seeing the psychology show up in. Uh, university course calendars. <laughs> Universities didn't used to have course calendars until the second half of the 19th century, and then suddenly there are you know the course you know the course catalog like you guys can see online now. You don't really get a paper copy anymore. They didn't have them online then because there was no online. It was horrible. Sometimes you'd walk away from a discussion. Up until 10 years ago, people would say, "Do you know this?" I don't know. You just walk away because now what you do is you go well, we can Google it. No questions are left unanswered anymore. Kind of weird. The world's weird. So people in the 19th century are talking about psychology. Um, the philosophers are still running psychology. Like I said the other day, philosophy is the start. All sciences come out of philosophy. So first physics, then chemistry, then, then um, eventually biology, psychology, lead philosophy. last half of the 19th century changed everything. It was the zeitgeist of the time. The zeitgeist. It's a word that most people don't know. That is a reference to a 20-year-old movie, but I don't care. Zeitgeist is a German word that means the spirit of history. You say it in a somewhat German accent like that. Spirit of history. The Germans don't have words for certain things, but they have words for things that, why would you have a word for that? The Germans don't have a word for glove. Does anybody here speak German? Okay. I'm not kidding where, see we have it, we put a thing on our hand, and we said, it's got to have, we have a name for that, we'll call it a glove. In German, it is called a Handschuh. A hand shoe. And you know, you know the things the army drives around in with the big guns on the end and they get the tracks? Tanks, right? We call them tanks. It's an interesting story why that was the case. When Churchill was developing, <coughs> Churchill helped develop the tank. And to, to hide the idea from the Germans in World War I, he said they were water tanks. That's why they're called tanks. But that's still, we got a name. It's in short, you know what the German word for it is? Panzerkampfwagen. Armored battle car. <laughs> so there's all, German has like three words and the rest are all just compound words. Which zeitgeist, right? Zeit is history, geist is ghost. The spirit of history, the ghost of history. Kind of like it. It's a cool word. They've got a word, you know, schadenfreude, to take pleasure in others' pain. That's nice. We don't have a word for that. We just go, oh man, it's wrong. There's Oh, it's, what is it? No, it's not really sadism, though, because it's, it's watching someone else, something bad happen to them, but it's not like the level of sadism. It's like watching someone, uh, Schadenfreude is like when someone gets their comeuppance, right? So it's like 
if you saw somebody who you really didn't like fail a test, and you went, <laughs> you went, ooh, that should be bad. That's what you're saying. So the Enlightenment of the 18th century is now affecting people's lives, starting to affect the common person. It's interesting to think that up until the 1850s, um, as a rule, people didn't leave their towns. It's another of migrations, except. But as a rule, you didn't. Because what might be over that hill? I don't know. Why would I ever leave town? I have a business here. I make barrels, like my father did, and his father, and his father, and his father, and his father. My last name is Cooper because I'm a Cooper. I make barrels. That's what a Cooper is. And suddenly, the Industrial Revolution starts. Things get kind of crazy because now you can go work somewhere in a city for someone else. World change. Trains, right? People are traveling on trains. It's like that show Hell on Wheels. Everything's a TV reference to it. Pretty much everything. Hell on Wheels, by the way, is a great show. Mr. Bohannon. People in England, especially, uh, you know, England's not huge, right? It's the size of, like, southern Ontario. There's 65 million people living there. Wasn't 65 million then, but it was like 30 million. And people are traveling by train. And even in London, in, in, in the UK, the capital of, of, of the British Empire at the time, they built a subway in the 1850s, the first subway, the tube. And it was steam trains. I bet that was pleasant to be in those towns. Cold ribbon steam trains. Delicious smoke. People are coughing, going, boy, this industrial revolution, <coughs> it's great. I work 14 hours a day. I get paid hardly anything. Sundays, leisure time after church. So the thing is, technology is affecting people now. And in fact, there's even lights at night, gas lights, which allow people to do things after dark, which was not a common thing for the common person. People can read now. They're starting to go to school. What? People didn't go to school. Little kids didn't go to school. You went to school if you were rich. Right? Past maybe a couple of years of learning how to maybe read a little started to see that science and technology could start to explain things and could, could change your lives, and even though it was rough, right? <coughs> Read some Charles Dickens. Things were progressive. It was weird. People could start explaining the origins of humanity that appealing to religion. It used to be and say, where did where does all this stuff come from? Someone, and your the person you saw in your church, almost certainly a guy, said, God, you went, okay. <coughs> Sounds good. That's Charles Darwin. There's a colorized photo. That actually is a photo. That's colorized. They didn't have color pictures in the 1850s. That was a new, new thing in the 30s, 1950s. So Charles Darwin writes this book called The Origin of Species. Um, comes out in 1858. It is revelatory. 
Um, one of the reasons is because, well, first of all, Darwin saw the effect this would have. It's interesting that humans are mentioned once on the very final page. But it's about the origin of species, why we have speciation, why we have different kinds of things. And he figures out why we do. But people right away figure out, well, that all also means people. That means we're like animals. Uh-oh. That's going to make some people very mad. First edition sold out on the very first day. So he writes a science book. It's not written for the general public, though you should read it. it is, by the way, you should never pay for it either because it's in the public domain. Download a free copy. It's completely legal. Anybody that makes you pay for a, an e-book copy of Origin of Species is, is there, you could get it anywhere else. So just find it somewhere and probably find an archive.org or something. Um, but you should be able to find a really cheap version too if you want to get an actual book. So the thing is, at this time, in fact, there's a great story that starts, this really hits sort of society in London, and people are saying, well, what, you know, this is a big thing. And a person, who's an apocryphal story, so it's probably not true, of someone saying to a woman, what do you think of Darwin's book? And she says, well, I hope it is not true, but I hope if it is true, it is not widely known. And of course, Darwin changed the world, and in fact, helped. There's no biology before Darwin. Right, the biology students in here know that. So you figure out anything with science. That's something that seemed intractable. Something that seemed like you, how could you know something like that? With, with, and then you can. That's pretty nifty. So the theory he comes up with is called uh, evolution by natural selection. And here's a great, it's a quote I like. I don't know where it comes from. It's what it says anonymous, but it's the theory of natural selection is so simple that anyone can misunderstand. And it really is simple. It's a trivially easy idea, or set of ideas. So Darwin, along with everybody else that was uh, a naturalist, so these are people that were, I guess we might call them biologists today, but they didn't really call themselves that then because it wasn't a term. So you're somebody who goes out and collects specimens, that kind of thing, because there's nothing else you can do. Because there's no evolution to be the backbone of biology. So there were sort of three big issues that, that people were struggling with trying to explain it. Why in the hell does the world work like this? So the first problem is that there's change in, over time in the flora and the fauna of the Earth. What we call evolution today, if you don't know what evolution by natural selection is, but you just say evolution, you just need to change over time. Okay. People were digging up fossils and they were finding animals that didn't exist. Extinct animals. Why aren't there any of these anymore? What's with the 
three-toed horses, or four-toed horses that we're finding. He'll get this right. This was not controversial, by the way, that was changed over time, in Darwin's time. So it's not like people didn't know this. Everybody saw this. Not everybody, the average person didn't. But anybody studying sort of biology, anybody, any naturalist, was like, this is something we have to explain. I don't know. What? Why are those things gone? And within Darwin's lifetime, they find the first, uh, in Germany, the first fossil of, of uh, Archaeopteryx, the, the original bird, a bird with teeth and claws on the end of its wings. Because, as you probably know, birds are dinosaurs. They really are. They're now, all the classification's been redone. Birds are dinosaurs. And just think of a bird about that big with a beak, but with teeth in it and claws on the end of its hands. Scary dino bird. Wouldn't want to be around. People are digging things like this up and saying, like, "Now this is, by the way, that's in the 1880s, so it's after Darwin." So it's not controversial then. It's not controversial now. It's controversial now. If you're a completely uninformed, uninformed person, everybody knows this is a thing. There's a taxonomic relationship among living things. The only thing people could really do, as I mentioned, was they could classify things. By the way, Darwin was great at this. The reason that Darwin goes on the voyage of the SS Beagle, why he's hired to go on that voyage, is because, well, first of all, he needs a job. But he's recommended because, the, you know, you, know you, you should really speak to young Charles Darwin. He's very good. He's very good. Like he, he was just big into collecting. That's one of the reasons, the, you know, the Beagle Voyage is about science, which is kind of great. So it's obvious this relationship among different species. It was clearly like, and Darwin saw the finches, of course, in the Galapagos Islands, and he saw that these are all finches, but they're different kinds of finches. People saw there were different kinds of cats, tigers and lions, Jaguars, cheetahs, house cats. And you go, those are all more similar to each other than they are to, I don't know, dogs. See, it's funny, today we just think, that's, how would that be an issue? But if you have no explanation for why that happens, it's weird, right? Like, why would the world be set up this way? There's no reason to set the world up like this. It's stupid. Why have 83 kinds of, you know, why are there 70 zillion kinds of the uh, freaking beetles? Don't we just one? So that's, again, today it seems like it's not, a, because it's not a problem to understand how the world works, but at the time it just seemed weird. The third problem was adaptation, that different kinds of... Uh, animals had different, depending on what we today call their niche, depending on sort of where they lived in the world and how they behaved, had different kinds of adaptations for that sort of lifestyle. So carnivores have different teeth than herbivores. 
or you know, think about it even within an animal. My eyes are clearly part of me, and so is my, I don't know, pancreas? But they do different things. How's that possible? That's weird, too. Again, today we just realize that we've explained this now. But realize, again, in the 1850s, people were like, I don't know. And the appeal that most people had was it was designed that way. Who designed it? Well, God did. And most and scientists were like, okay, that's great, but it's not a satisfactory <coughs> explanation for me because I, it, it doesn't help me understand the mechanism. Questions so far about what these problems that Darwin solved were? You good? So the solution provides a mechanistic account. In other words, it tells you how it works. The mechanism. How these things occur and how they're, all three of these are intimately related. And at the time when it was published, people were like, um, oh, yeah, of course. And why didn't I see that? Because it's re really good science very often is like, not all the time, but very often groundbreaking ideas are really simple when they were standing right in front of you, but it took a great mind to figure out how simple they were. I would argue that Darwin discovering evolution by natural selection is the most important scientific discovery of the last 500 years. You could argue other ones, but I would say I mean, Richard Dawkins said, biologist Richard Dawkins said, uh, when, if we ever are contacted by aliens, they're not going to say, do you know about special relativity? They're going to say, have you discovered evolution by natural selection? Because it's, it's this thing, where do we come from? That's a pretty neat question. And to have an answer that has stood the test of over 150 years, and it just gets tweaked. It gets tweaked a little bit. It doesn't get thrown out because it works. And good theories are like that. They, 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 they are fruitful in that they cause research to happen. They answer a lot of questions and they organize data. This does all of those things. It actually makes biology possible as a, as a discipline. Okay. So how does it work? First thing is there's competition among living things. So more things are hatched or whatever, born, than survive and reproduce. That reproduction itself occurs with variability. And there is variability among individuals. And that variability itself is heritable. In other words, the characteristics that you have are heritable. There's no gen genetics back then. Uh, well, there was genetics. It just hadn't been discovered. There were no genes. It's amazing. It was just until Gregor Mendel invented it. Um, so, but Darwin knew somehow there was a mechanism for inheritance from parent to offspring. And he realized it wasn't just an averaging of the two, some sort of blending <coughs> of the two. 
right? Because you know this, and you can just look at yourself and look at your mom and dad and realize that you look more like your mom than your dad. And it doesn't seem to make much of a difference if you're a woman or a man. Very often, you know, you look and go, I look like my mom and I'm a boy, <laughs> you know, or I look like the, my dad and I'm a girl. So selection determines what individuals enter the adult breeding population. Okay. Selection determines what individuals enter the adult breeding population. That selection is done by the environment. So those who are best able, best suited for that environment reproduce. Because the other ones die or aren't as successful. And then they pass these well suited characteristics on to the young. So, for example, and this was in Darwin's time, industrial revolutions happened, there was a moth in, it's all about moths, isn't it? The whole course is about moths. It really isn't. This is my second real lecture, and moths are being mentioned again. There is a, a kind of moth called a salt and pepper moth. It's called that because it's got white wings that are flecked with black. Looks like a birch tree, looks like a birch bark. In fact, the function of that coloration is to hide on a birch tree, and a bird doesn't see it so easily, so he'll get eaten. Pretty good system. Then the Industrial Revolution happens, and I don't think any of us have any idea what it was like in the 1800s in the UK, or in a big city in, in, in North America, or Europe. But I mean, in, in London, which was the biggest, most important city in the world, and there's factories everywhere, and there are no environmental regulations. And and nobody cares because everybody's nobody cares they don't know so trees literally are covered in black soot everything's covered in black soot you know the idea we have about how London England is foggy it's actually not foggy that all comes from Dickens novels and, and things from the time you couldn't see in front of you because of all the freaking smog it was just coal smoke in the air and sulfur it's like living in Sudbury. <laughs> I'm kidding. Sudbury's a kid. It's not like that at all anymore. Anyway, and Sudbury would be a heaven even in the 1970s compared to what London is. So suddenly the trees are black. And then these uh, black and white moths are like, yeah, I'm hiding up against this tree. And then they get eaten. But then there's these mutant moths that have too much of the black. And they're like, oh, this worked. And they mate with another one. And they're not going to mate with a... a Speckled one, you know why? Because they're all dead. They mate with another darker colored one. Suddenly you have black moths, which again, kind of goth, so I like that. <laughs> so now you, the salt pepper moth is gone, in essence. Then after, after World War II, there's, there's some environmental regulations coming in. And eventually, in the 1960s and 70s, things are cleaned up. It isn't all black everywhere. Right? Now the birch trees actually have white bark again. And the salt and pepper moth, the, the completely black colored moth, kind of disappears and is replaced by a salt and pepper moth. That's nature 
natural selection, doing the selection. It's the same thing as Darwin talked about artificial selection, and that's when somebody does the selecting. That's like when you do selective breeding of, of, of uh, well, Darwin had pigeons. There's a great movie called Darwin, you should watch it, and it's, um, he's got a guy who, he's got a guy who takes care of his pigeons. Darwin was not poor. Uh, so there's, he has people on his, what it called? called? That movie with Darwin's? I think it was called. It's really good, though, remember that. Um, and this guy would breed pigeons, and he'd take two fast ones and bring them together to make a faster pigeon. Where do you think we got cows from? Cows don't exist in nature. Humans invented cows. We crossbred these things called arcs, which are they aren't they're all gone. You know, humans. We killed all of them. But we crossbred them, ones that were nice and pleasant, and ones that gave a lot of milk, and ones that were kind of gave a lot of meat, and we ended up making cows. If you released cows out of the environment today, they like, release the cows! Free the cows! That's a sign. I'm carrying a sign. Free the cows. Um, the cows would not last long because they'd be walking around going, oh, I'm a cow. Sheep are like that too. We invented sheep. Native people in North America and South America invented corn. You know the corn on the cob? You know what corn used to look like before people just crossbred corn? Because it had one kernel on it. Delicious. It's a lot of work. But they crossbred corn. A lot of the vegetables we have today, uh, North American varieties, were discovered by uh, First Nations people. And what they did is they took, they crossbred. So farmers the world over knew this. And everybody's like, well, where does the variation come from? And it's like, well, maybe, they, maybe nature's doing it too. Questions about that? Okay, good. So, How does this work? Those are my kids. It's Madeleine, when she was 10, that's her 10th 10? 10? She's 25 now. She just texted me something. Well, she got a new phone. An eight, iPhone 8 Plus, she said it makes her feel small. Um, and that's my son, John. So I'm about 10 years ago again, so he's, that's more than 10 years ago. That's more like 15 years ago. He's about two, he's sitting by a computer because that's what he does. So the key is reproduction. So as gross as my kids may find it, they are aware that I've reproduced. So if you survive to be 128 but have no kids, you are not as fit as I am, not as successful. Fitness doesn't mean digging through my pool. Fitness means reproductive success. So assuming the traits that made me successful may help them, I, so you, you can... I am amor, amore. I am more fit than the 128-year-old guy. Well, you know, if you really helped a couple of nephews or nieces, that's a quarter related to him, that equals one kid. It's called inclusive fitness, and it's beyond the scope of this course. You give your life for your brother. No, but two of my brothers. That includes me. Five and five and five. So, 
cold calculating genetic thing there. By the way, more recent pictures of me. My son believes that he's taken over the Canadian government. That's the last year, so he would have been 16 there. Did we go to White Pines? Because I think that's is a kid who used to read the announcements, John Broadback. That's it. And then that's uh, Maddie giving a presentation at a, at a conference about hippocampal function in cowbirds. Because um, she went into the family business. So, yeah, she do grow up. She's 25. That's her getting her master's degree last year. So survival of the fittest is not about which but you know Darwin never said survival of the fittest. Never said that. It has those with the most offspring who reproduce. So it's not just about having offspring, it's about having offspring who are successful. Okay. So the answer to our trilogy of problem is. Descent with modification, this is actually from, from uh, the quotes there because it's from uh, Origins. Descent with modification from a common ancestor, not random modification, but modification shaped by natural selection. Modification shaped by natural selection. All right, so questions so far, because this is, I know for the biology students, they know this. I one hopes the psychology students know it too, but you may not have had as much um, exposure to it. So questions, don't feel, just ask. You really understand? See, I told you it was simple. Evolution's easy to understand. It really is. And the cool thing is, every time something's come along and someone said, "Oh, you know, this challenge is it," you do a couple of experiments, and some people take a look and go, "Oh no, we can we can deal with that." It's a really amazing theory. Not a lot of things last that long in science. So suddenly now you have a discipline called biology. Eventually you get a discipline called psychology. It's in the 1870s. So 20 years later, psychology starts to split off into philosophy. At the time, it didn't have a big unifying theory like biology does. It's kind of getting one. Which, interestingly, is evolution by natural selection because psychology is a life science. So I talked the other day about cause and function. How do you understand cause of behavior and function of behavior? The causal part of behavior refers to immediate cause, stimuli or genetics, that kind of thing. The function is about evolution and about what the behavior accomplishes. So what's the behavior accomplished? And what's its evolutionary history? Now, the interesting, well, the, interesting the, the problem here is behavior isn't fossilized very well. Right? She doesn't. We can make inferences. Like if we get a nest of dinosaurs and we see that a female is with a bunch of hatched young, we can say there was parental care in that dinosaur. 
was probably feeding from that dinosaur up beyond by the mother. We can make some pretty reasonable guesses. We can look back to human behavior and human evolutionary history and take a look at things that have been found. Some of them pretty amazing. You'll see things like, for example, uh, there's a couple of my very favorite uh, things that actually kind of choke me up. And one of them is a set of footprints that was found. Um, and you can tell, they can, I don't know, paleontologists can figure these things out, but they can tell it was a mother, so a woman. Well, they know a mother, but it was a woman. Um, and there were the little kid's footprints beside it. And they could tell by the amount of weight that was put on each foot that the mother was holding the kid's hand. So that was something that people have been doing for 50, 80, 100,000 years. They weren't that different from us. And my favorite one, which I guess because I'm a father, so it's, it's, it's pretty clearly a man's hand. And this is because humans can... We make culture, we make things, we make artifacts, so we can actually look at these things. But there's, uh, in uh, caves in uh, Spain, relics of people about maybe between 15 and 20,000 years ago. Maybe more, maybe up to 50,000 years ago. The guy's got his hand here, and then it's his son or daughter's hand beside it. And he's obviously blown ochre around it, so it's left the mark of his handprint, his kid's handprint, to this day. So we can talk about parental care. Clearly in humans, it's not been that different 50,000 years ago than it is now. But most behavior isn't fossilized. Until we started writing things down, and then we can say, okay, the ancient Romans lived like this, because here's, here's what they said. <coughs> so that stuff really kind of Gets to me. Never used to, but then I had kids, and then everything changed, and nothing else in my life had any meaning. Um, in a good way, in a pretty good way. So the question you're asking about a behavior is, if you want to talk, completely explain it, is how does it increase fitness? And we don't always know. That. And not every behavior does increase fitness. Some are completely neutral. Not very many, but some are completely neutral. Right? And some things are passed on from generation to, to each other, and they are not. There is no sort of genetic component or so little that it doesn't matter. So, so little that it doesn't matter. Uh, so that's sort of cultural traditions. And in fact, the idea that there are units of heritability that come from culture and not from biology directly, uh, those are called memes. Yes, I know you all think memes are when you write words over top of that guy, it's aliens, but that's not what it is. One does not simply, let's come up with another name for it. Richard Dawkins invented the term meme 35 years ago, and then people stole it. So. Anyway, so it may still, you know, fashion is one, something like that. So, I don't know. Music you like, whatever. Let's talk about humans. So we split off from the chimps about five million years ago. And I shouldn't say we split off from the chimps. I should say that humans and chimps split off from a common ancestor. 
and it may be a little longer than five million years. Uh, it's look, more recent data suggests that it might be as much as seven million years ago. Okay, so about seven million years ago, we go our separate ways. It's almost certainly an ape-like creature because chimps are apes and we're apes. Yes, we're apes. Well, you know, biologically, that's what we are. We are hairless, slow-moving, but really smart apes. That's what humans are. And for a long time, that's all. That's what we were. We were sort of short, and we were on. We weren't. So we were getting less and less hairy. Why did that? What's the selective advantage of not having hair? <coughs> See if you can think about it. Well, you can think about it. See if you can figure it out. Yeah. Go ahead. So you can what? Move faster. Move fa Why would it make you move faster here? Fur. You're very close, right? I'm just assuming because of the theory that swimmers like shave and stuff in order to uh, the water more quickly. Yeah, it's like tenths of a second, though, right? No, but you're pretty close. But that's like tenths of a second. But if you think about this, we're not strong. Like if you got into a ring with a chimp, you'd lose. Right? Like, so if you took a swing at a chimp, it'd kill you. Now, if anything humans can do is we can invent guns, you shoot the gun, you kill the chimp. Not that killing chimps is good. That came out totally wrong. But, so we can't, we're out hunting, and remember, we're not hunting with guns 200,000 years ago, 2 million years ago. We're hunting with maybe rocks, maybe spears. We can't outrun the animals. We can't run 50 miles an hour. So if you look at the pattern of the gait, this is like I talked with the uh, spacing of, of uh, fossilized footprints. People ran faster back then. Everybody, not everybody was Usain Bolt, but most everybody was fast, which makes some sense. You had to be fast. You're chasing down, I don't know, what are you chasing? <coughs> An auric, right? Maybe we've been in cows yet. But orcs are slow. You're chasing like elk, something fast. You're not going to outrun it. But you know what you can do? You can outlast it. You can keep running. Humans have more endurance than any other animal, pretty much, as far as running goes. And why? One of the reasons is because we have no fur, we, we, and, we, so we can, and then we sweat for cooling our bodies down. So we can keep going. We, used to, we didn't used to hunt really as much, probably. There was, I'm sure there was planning. You go here, you go here, and then you throw the thing. Mostly, though, it was like, what if we chase this thing for three or four days till it's exhausted, and then it collapses, and then we just beat it to death with sticks? That's a little less dangerous than going, sneaking up on a mastodon going, oh, God. Yeah. I have my impression of a Neolithic human chasing a mastodon. So, I don't break it off. So the one thing we can do, we're smart enough that we can get together in groups and go, let's hunt. They would, we weren't speaking English, but... So what happened? Maybe a diet change. Maybe, in fact, that um, 
one follows the other. It's really weird. We were able to get a lot of food, a lot of nutritional value out of marrow and bones. So we could butcher animals. Okay? Split bones and suck out the marrow, which is, by the way, delicious. Cooking really helped. Was it humans who invented cooking? It was probably like Homo heidelbergensis that invented cooking. So they had fire, and then you cook. It's easier to digest cooked food. Yes, I know people, I'm on a raw food diet. Good, have fun. But even cooking, cooking maybe changed everything and made us human. But you go have you your raw food. That's good. You like that? And the myths of the people that are into that say it's easier to digest raw food. No, it simply isn't. That is just it's completely wrong. It's amazing. But so it's probably cooking. It's probably special becoming an omnivore. So we ate everything. Humans will eat anything but wood. The only thing we can't really eat is cellulose. We can eat anything else. We can eat meat and grains and fruit and everything. By the way, this is when people say, well, I'm on the paleo diet. Really? You eat a lot of bugs? Yeah? A lot of grubs? Just grass? You eat just grass? Remember, we were not... What's the variety of food that we have? Just saying I like meat is fine. It's saying <laughs> Standing up is probably the most important thing of the whole deal. So this standing up is interesting because um, <coughs> one of the things is that you have to pump your, you have to pump blood uphill when you're standing up. Very few animals, very few mammals, are on two feet. Kangaroos, kinda. Most animals are on all fours. Your heart doesn't have to be so powerful that it has to pump blood uphill, up to your brain. Your brain uses, you know, 75% of your glucose and quarter of your oxygen. You kinda need a heart, that would, the blood, and that, that's what transports it to the brain. Wow. So we get this, when we stand up, and we probably stand up so we can see over tall grass, this is a good guess, on the savanna of Africa. We're all Africans. Look out. And that's an advantage. No, nothing else is doing that, so we can see stuff. Oh, over there is a bunch of wildebeest. Want to chase them until they collapse, and they will beat them to death? Um, <laughs> on the way, we'll, we'll, we'll eat some bugs. Yeah. But now when you have this heart, it's very powerful, pumping uphill, you now have the capacity to develop this huge brain. And we have, related to our body size, not the biggest brain in the animal kingdom, but it's up there. It's up there. Like capitalized oxygen there. Um, so if you get a heart so powerful, you can pump blood up. You might as you got a lot of extra power. Okay. So you get a bigger brain. See, like I said, we don't have big teeth. 
We look at a chimp, our closest relative is a chimp. We share about 99% of our DNA with chips. There's very little difference between us and chips. That difference is a pretty important difference, but there's very little difference genetically. We don't have big teeth. Chimps have big teeth. We can't run that fast, most of us. But we can have smarter brain. We can't run, we can't smart. Once he gets tired, the wildebeest were chasing. I'll chase him that way, and you guys go over that way, and then you're ready with the sticks and the rocks and uh, the spears that we fashioned. Yeah, we also could make tools, because we're smart enough to go, you know what we could do? Instead of just throwing stuff, why don't we make throwing sharpened things at it? And then one guy looks at the other guy and goes, oh. And they make those, and they go, it's spears, right? So our brains made us who we are. And feeding that brain delicious, delicious things like bone marrow and animal fat, right? Because we could. We were better at eating whole animals than any other animal. And we know that people butchered animals because you take, you take a look at old bones that are hundreds and thousands of years old and they're split open. And you don't just split open bones because why would you do that? Because you, you eat the marrow. And charred bones, so we're cooking. Now, I'm, it's not like it was a good restaurant. You're just throwing stuff on the fire. I doubt there were people, you know, how do you want your mastodon? Medium? You want it medium? What do you want? Philistine? We're having this rare. You know, I don't think there's any of that good. So my saying that big brains mean big smarts, I kind of am. The idea of the encephalization quotient, so what you do is you arbitrarily say if we divide brain size by body size, and we arbitrarily then set that for rats is 1.0. It's just to get a scale. <coughs> We're about a five. Cats are about a point eight. Dolphins though are like a seven, and dolphins don't run the world. So this isn't perfect. Right? Dolphins are probably pretty smart, but they aren't human smart. Like there's something pretty special about Dol dolphins don't walk around talking to each other about where dolphins come from. There's something special about people. But is it just in the brains how we use it? How it's organized? which is part of what makes this stuff so easy. Now, you can look within certain bird species. Are birds that store food? Recover it later? Chickadees? Right? So, uh, Clark's nutcrackers. So what they do is they, they, they take seeds and they store it, and then in the winter they can recover. So they don't migrate away for the winter. What they do is they stay around, but they find food and they eat. But once they're done eating, they store food uh, and they recover it later. They use memory to recover one species, the Clark's nutcracker, in the fall hides about 30,000 seeds in about a 40 kilometer radius, and by the, by the following spring has recovered about 25,000 of them. And they're using memory. It's pretty amazing. <coughs> so um, we can look at food storing birds and non storing birds at a size of a certain part of their brain, the hippocampus. Hippocampus is important in spatial memory. 
Indeed, it's been shown that, for example, cab drivers in the city of London, England, have better spatial memory, which things are, than the average person who lives in London, which makes sense. They're driving around London, England. They also have bigger hippocampus. <laughs> that part of their brain's bigger than the non So these food-storing birds have a bigger hippocampus than non-storage. So you can say it with between species and make, and you've got a good ecological reason, a good evolutionary reason. By the way, if they don't recover, like if, if, a, if a chicken doesn't recover a stored seed or doesn't eat about 30 minutes after it wakes up in the morning in the winter, it starves to death. You have to understand, chickadees weigh 11 grams. It's a small animal. But if it wakes up, goes and finds a seed that it hid yesterday, or two days ago, or two weeks ago, or a month ago, and eats it, it's fine. So you can talk about it between species, and you're pretty safe within closely related species, like food storing and non storing birds. Okay? Within species, that's not very useful. Like, I can tell you, for example, that on average, when you correct for body size, men have larger brains than women. It's just true. But men and women don't score differently on IQ tests. Men and women don't show score differently on, you know, any sort of general intelligence kind of things. So it's not that useful. So within species, you probably can't say much, right? So I can't just measure your brains and say, well, you have the brain pan of a stagecoach to the listeners. remember that Simpsons reference. That's good. Um, so you, you can't really within, but you can between. And humans are so closely related. It's interesting. We all look pretty different, right? You look around the room. We all look different. But we are the most inbred mammal, except for cheetahs, of all the mammals. About 250,000 years ago, almost all humans died. Probably somewhere between 200 and 2,000 humans were all, were all that was left. It was a big climate change thing. Ever heard about that? Um, so it's interesting that while we all look very different to each other, you might think, well, chimps all look different. Chimps are way more diverse than we are, genetically. The, the, at the very most, everybody on Earth is at the very most each other's 26th cousin. And there's seven and a half billion of them. We are one species, we're one people, but the cool thing is we're, I mean, I don't want to say it all, Join hands and sing Kumbaya. But we're almost like one big family. It's very cool. Okay? So the looks are very deceiving because we're way more similar than any other animal species. If aliens did come, they'd go, ooh, you're all related. <laughs> like they'd be all freaked out by us. <laughs> Which is actually, I think, kind of neat because I like concentrating on the similarities between humans rather than others. Anybody have any questions? I don't want to start the next bit because it seems stupid. Because we've got like five minutes, eight minutes left. It seems kind of silly. Unless you feel cheated out of your tuition. No? Okay. I'll see you next time. We'll start the next uh, bit. Thanks, everyone. Things have been okay for me Except that I'm a zombie now I really wish you'd let us in I speak for all of us when I say 
you folks might hesitate to submit to our demand. But here's an FYI, you're all gonna die screaming. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're not unreasonable, I mean no one's gonna eat your eyes. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside and eat your brains. I don't want to nitpick, Tom, but is this really your plan? Spend your whole life locked inside a mall. Maybe that's okay for now, but someday you'll be out of You'll have to make the call I'm not surprised to see you haven't thought it through enough You never had the head for all that bigger picture stuff But Tom, that's what I do And I plan on eating you slowly I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes. All we wanna do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. If you open up the door, we'll all come inside and eat your brains. I'd like to help you, Tom. Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, 
All of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Brodbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh- uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>